We are going to continue teaching through the Minor Prophets today. Last week, we taught through Hosea, which is, you know, in our English Bibles, the first one you come to. Just a quick review. They're not minor because they're less effective, because they're less accurate, because they're less important. It is merely about the, the, the length of their writing. Last week in Hosea... We were, I mean, prayerfully you were greatly encouraged if you heard it because what we got to hear about last week was God's unconditional, unending, and redeeming love. We got to hear the invitation and the promise that God loves and calls back those who have a past, those whose life is messy, those who think that they have too much shame to overcome. There was such just a great invitation and beautiful picture that God will always call us back and redeem us as his own. So if you didn't get a chance to hear it, I would invite you to go invest 49 minutes of your time and go listen to it um, and, and maybe take a lap through reading it yourself. It's 14 chapters. It's wonderful. Um, and and what's, what's wonderful as we work through these next nine weeks, as we have nine weeks left, including this week, there's going to be this... this um, we're going to have each week, we're going to have kind of a different seat, a different perspective in the stadium of this recurring work of God's, God's judgment, our repentance, and his mercy. And so I, I'm looking forward to the different ways that God kind of brings us into that, kind of into that work and, in, and into his mercy. Uh, so this week, we're going to continue in Joel, as I said. But before we do that, I want to kind of help us do a thought exercise to kind of get us in the right frame of mind. So, so who in here is a parent? Parent? Okay, that's some people. Who in here has ever been a friend to somebody? To the point where, like, it's a deep friendship, you feel responsible for them, you care about them, you love them enough to, to, to enter into hard situations. Does that still apply to you? Okay, so did, did, did I get everyone parents or meaningful friendships, right? We all kind of have that. And the point of this is we want to think about someone in your life, in your past or present, where you have cared for them deeply to the point, again, that you feel responsible for them. Even, even, if, even as friends, we feel that way, right? We want to think about that. And we want to try to find that person in your life, that child in your life that maybe has a destructive pattern. Do you have an experience of that? where they're doing something harmful to themselves, they're making choices that you can see are not going to turn out well. And for parents, we, you know, I have two kids, they're amazing, but I have these moments quite often of like, gosh, if they could only see what I see, if they could only know what I know, I've got the benefit of years and experience, and I just kind of know how this goes, or we have friends where we can just see it coming. So try to, try to now grasp onto one of those relationships. So you're here with this friend, with this child, this person you care about, and you're pleading with them, you're, you're, you're striving and striving to kind of break through to them. You try every tactic to turn them, to open their eyes, to, to help them. But they, they won't listen. They, they don't respond. They, they don't respect your intention for them. They, they disregard your word, your wisdom, your knowledge, your, and they continue. So even though it may not be a personal act against you, it does reflect kind of their, their understanding of, of your intent for them. They don't trust it enough to turn and listen. Eventually, it comes, keeps going, and eventually kind of the chances run out. Eventually, you kind of come to this point of like, I mean, I guess I just have to let them go through it. I guess I have to let them experience the outcome of their actions. And prayerfully, it doesn't lead to their ultimate destruction. It leads to them learning, leads to their, to their growing and to their restoration, right? So do we all have that kind of relationship in mind right now in your past? If you've ever been there, 
you're in good company. Um, to let you know the company you are in is the, well, you're in the company of the creator of all things, our sovereign God and king. You guys have a common ground in this. Because um, there, you know, there's this common thread through Joel as we go through it today. And this common thread is this, this phrase, this moment stated as this, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And in this moment, this is the moment that God says, no more chances. It's time for decision. It's time to, I'm going to give you over to what you've been pursuing. So if that sounds unloving to you, if that sounds kind of like the typical, wrathful, judgmental God, I, I want to urge you to hang in there today. I want you to, hang, I want you to, I want to encourage you and kind of ask you to listen and, and see uh, what the heart of God is uh, in this day of the Lord through the prophet of Joel today. Let me pray. Um, God, I, I, I am, I'm grateful, Lord, that, that you are not totally like me. Um, I, I know you created us in your image, and Lord, we, we can be loving, we can be kind, we can show mercy and forgiveness, but yet, Lord, you are perfect and holy and true. And so, God, I pray that today as we encounter your heart for your people and, Lord, your creation, Lord, that we would be humbled, but we would also be encouraged and lifted up to the point that we would respond to your beckoning, God. We would respond to your loving correction in a way that, of course, first and foremost, honors and glorifies you, but also brings us the joy and satisfaction that we so deeply yearn for um, and, and also accomplishes your purpose in this world. So, Lord, we surrender all to you. Uh, speak through me or in spite of me, Lord. Take my words, catch them aflame in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that we would be your witnesses, that you would be glorified, and we would know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So open your Bibles to Joel 1 if you have them. If, you're, uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's Bibles on the floor near you. Uh, if, you're, you, if you do use one of those, um, just to help you out, the ones with the black border, Joel starts on page 645. The ones with the white cover with the blue letters, uh, Joel starts on page 443. We'll also have the, the text on the screen, and I, I believe we also have a version event today as well. So if you use the Bible app, go to more, click events, we'll pop up, thanks to GPS, and you can follow along there as well. Um, but it's interesting, as we get into Joel, there's not much known about Joel. There, Joel's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, so all we know about Joel is from Joel. So it's hard to say exactly when Joel was written, because it's you know, and, and there really is no kind of consensus. What we know is that it was written somewhere between the ninth and sixth century BC. Our our New Test, our English Bibles would obviously lean towards the ninth century because of where he's placed, kind of in this chronological. Uh, I, I would probably think that as well. But again, we can't definitively say. Uh, but in Joel one one, also something else we know about Joel was that he was the son of this guy named Pethuel. We don't know anything else about Pethuel. We know what his name means. Pethuel means one who trusts God, one who sees God, one who sees God as he is and trusts God. So what's really cool, just a great little insight out of the gates here, is we see the faith of Joel's father. Because Pethuel lived in, in, in Israel when there was a time where faithlessness 
was, was all too common. You couldn't guarantee faithfulness in the people around him. So one who trusted God, he actually, in an act of faith, named his son Joel. And why is that an act of faith? Because Joel, the name itself, is a proclamation of Yahweh is God. So this proclamation of the one who says I am is actually the one who is I am. He is the God of all. And so he, he kind of, he, he acts in this, this act of faith, and names his son Joel, and we see that Joel becomes a prophet. We also know that Joel ministered to Judah in the southern kingdom, but that's, that's about all we know about Joel. Um, so even though we, don't, we can't know a lot about Joel, we can definitely walk away with a clear truth uh, for all of us today. So, so, so with that phrase, how many of you are familiar with the phrase, the day of the Lord? How many of you have heard it before? Don't be afraid. I'm not going to make you tell me what you think it means, okay? Just, so, so from familiar to some, maybe not to everyone. For those of you that, that have heard it before, this is where I would love for you to say something. What do you associate day of the Lord with? Just speak it out. Judgment. Judgment, 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 judgment. Anyone else? Judgment. I mean, probably for all of us, that's, that's what we associate the day of the Lord with is, is judgment. And, and if that's the case, you're not wrong. It certainly is the day that God's judgment, where the gavel is, is, is kind of smashed down and, and the, the verdict comes. Um, but we need to make sure we understand the full picture of what God is doing because this thread of the day of the Lord kind of carries us through all of Joel. So much like Hosea, even though Joel's only three chapters, we're not going to read every verse. We're going to kind of find some stepping stones throughout. Um, but today we do want to understand what God was doing. So Joel's prophecy, much like Hosea, comes in a time with Israel when they were kind of in a, in a season of peace and plenty. And so there, you know, and so we all, and we see kind of the same pattern that when that happens, when comfort sets in, we also, we see that in humanity, we often turn to kind of we turn away from God. We turn to idols. We turn to false worship or to other, to other powers. And so we see this happening in Israel as well. So they were turning to other gods and nations. They were turning away from God. And, and this matters because we have to remember who Israel is, who they were. What were they promised to be? Israel was what they were, they, they, they were meant, they were called to be God's chosen people, right? They were the people of promise. They were the people that were meant as God called them, blessed them, the ones that he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. They were meant to be as the blessed ones, a blessing to all the world. It was through them that all the nations were meant to know God and see him for who he is. It was never meant to be exclusive. It was never meant to be a position of prestige and power. It was meant to be the way in which God brings his grace to the Gentiles. And if you don't know the Gentiles as anyone who was not a part of Israel, right? So you have to remember this. This matters. So they were God's people of promise. They were God's people of blessing. And through their promise and blessing, they were meant to bring his love and truth and grace to the world. And make no mistake, God worked in grace even in the old covenant. God didn't institute grace in Jesus. He's always been a God of grace. Read over and over again. Catch it today as we talk about and we see God's patience and mercy. So as we associate this phrase with judgment, we want to see the full picture here. So we see the people of Israel. They had once again turned away from their God, and yet they were, this was egregious because they were the very ones that he had, he had called to be um, his people that would go and take his love and truth to the world. 
and now they're throwing all it away. So Joel's first kind of day of the Lord moment comes in the midst of him making an object lesson, and it's probably better to say that God leading him to make an object lesson of a plague that had come upon Israel. So let's, let's look at here, Joel 1, 15 and 16. It says, Alas, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. So we see this description, this pointing out like, hey, as, as from the Lord, this destruction has come. So we see this description of devastation coming. So if we go back to Joel 1.4, you see this, this devastation comes through this plague of locusts. It's where it starts. So 1.4 says, this is very literal, what the cutting locust left... The swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroy the destroying locust has eaten. Joel's probably not describing different species of locusts. It's probably more likely like a wave, like the waves of locusts. Because I don't know if you know this about locusts, but they are really good at procreating. Like one female laying an egg in June can have 80, 80 million offspring by January. And so if the winds are right, if the conditions are right, these swarms of locusts can get concentrated into one area. And so we see that that's what's happened here, and they've come, and it's just been wave upon wave of these locusts just decimating all of their livelihood, just stripping it all away. And, and so you see this moment of devastation. But it doesn't stop with the locusts. Um, but, oh, sorry, let me just make sure we catch this too. So as it comes through, Joel wants to make sure to get their attention. And as he does this, he wants to make sure they don't miss, um, he, they don't miss this opportunity to, to wake up. We see phrases like, awake you drunkards and weep and well in verse 5. And verse 8 says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth. And by the way, that's an that's a, that's a expression of mourning over the loss of her bridegroom. Right? So it's this tragic moment of, of hope and innocence fractured and lost. So it's meant, he's like saying, hey, so awake. We see that after the locust, it doesn't stop there. There's also a drought. Verse 12 says, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. And then after the drought, there's a wildfire. Joel 1, 19-20, to you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So there's a cataclysmic picture here of utter and complete sudden devastation. I mean, make sure not to miss, like, all was well. They were, there was gladness in their life. Again, we just saw that, that gladness had dried up in the children of man. There was gladness. There was, there was partaking. There was fulfillment. There was plenty. And in a moment, it turned, I mean, maybe I, don't, I was like, is this too soon? But just thinking of a couple weeks ago with Imelda, you know, which, which of course echoes to Harvey for Houston, where over 500,000 homes were flooded out. But with Imelda... Woke up Wednesday morning not having heard anything, and all of a sudden there's a tropical depression in the Gulf. And they're like, hey, it's coming to Houston. We're like, okay, it's, okay, where, what, who? And then, before, right, and then that same morning, oh, it's not, it's not a depression anymore. It's a storm right before it hits the coast. And then we all batten down the hatches on Wednesday, and it's kind of a non-event. We're like, okay, whew, that was nothing. And then Thursday, 40 between, but it turns out between Wednesday, between Wednesday and Thursday, 43 inches of, of rain dropped 
on Houston. And we saw, again, this picture of just sudden devastation in parts of Houston. And so we can identify, and we've been through this with Harvey before. If you weren't affected by Imelda, we've all seen it. So we see this kind of this, this moment of shock, this moment of everything being stripped away. And what we have to see here, what's being pointed out here in this, that God's taking advantage of in this moment, he wants them to see that, that hey, my people, you've been partaking and enjoying my blessing. Because, again, is God the provider of all things good? Is he our sovereign Lord who, who is the creator and author of all life? So everything that we have is from him. Everything, every good and perfect gift is from him. So he's saying what we're seeing here is that they were partaking of the blessings of God. They were, they were feasting. They were receiving. There was gladness. But yet none of that was with a posture of gratefulness. None of that was with a posture of acknowledging God as God. And so they had once again turned away, turned to themselves as their self-suppliers, turned to others as the ones who were their refuge. And, he, and so even though they were partaking in his blessing, they were denying God as, as their God. They had turned to care more about the gifts than the giver of the gifts. We see in verse 16, once again, it says, joy and gladness has ceased in the house of God. And so, I mean, this, so we start to see the glimpse of the kindness that in God stripping this away, he is, he is saying, hey, the things, these lesser things that you are finding gladness in, I'm taking them away so that you will once again turn to me. Their joy had become circumstantial. It was dependent on the presence of the gifts God gives over God himself. If God is good, if he is loving, if he is true, if he is holy and sovereign, what greater gift than do we have than residing and abiding in the presence of God? They had forgotten their God. More accurately, they had denied their God. Again, like I said, they enjoyed the gifts but gave affection and loyalty to other gods and other nations. They had also forgotten who they were. You cannot get to this place. They could not get to this place without forgetting who they were created to be his chosen people, as they experienced blessing, meant to be a blessing. In Joel 1, 13 through 14, we see that God takes this opportunity to call the people of Israel to repentance. So we see this, this call, think again, back to that relationship where you have come in and you said, please, like, I'm trying to help you. Do you see this? Once again, God is entering in. So 13 and 14 is this, this plea for repentance, this invitation in God's kindness. He is saying through Joel, as I said, in the stripping of way, that is this devastating thing in that you can come to this place of trust. Don't trust in the things that will burn up and blow away. This is God is saying, trust in me. I am the everlasting one. I am the promise maker. I am the promise keeper. He says, I am the one who satisfies in season and in out, in, in plenty or in want. God has given to us so much abundance and this is the first hint that the day of the Lord is not just judgment. The day of the Lord is more than just judgment. Of course it is, but God's judgment is only an expression of his character and his promise. So this is our first hint that there's something more. What are the things he's given you that possibly have been elevated to a place that you can't imagine having peace without them? Is there anything in your life that in subtle ways, is taking away your affection from God, taking away from, from God being your satisfaction, from God being your refuge, from God being your deliverer, from God being the one who tells you who you are. 
Is there anything in your life that you've been given, whether it's the possessions, whether it's your family, whether it's your job, whether it's your, your place of living, that somehow has been elevated to a place that it is your source of peace? Think on that as we continue. So our next day of the Lord moment jumps from a, a present description of devastation to a future prophecy of defeat. So in the next breath, as we come to chapter 2, Joel continues, and where the devastation of the locust was so complete that it was compared to a figurative army, now Joel foretells of a coming literal army that will overtake, conquer, and take captive. Joel 2, 1 and 2 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. So an alarm trumpet, blow it because something is coming. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, uh, nor, will we, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So it's a terrifying scene. Verses 3 through 11 of chapter 2 continues to describe this utter and complete devastation that this conquering army brings. It's sobering, it's gut-wrenching, it's terrifying. He uses this metaphor. He says, before they come in, your place is like the Garden of Eden. After they come through, it is nothing but destruction. And he's not saying that you, were, you guys have a perfect peace. Again, that, that, that was shattered in the fall, but it's, this is this communication by contrast. So he's saying the destruction will be so great after this army comes through that what you are experiencing now will, would have been like the Garden of Eden. So it's just this terrifying, sober picture. Again, this will you wake up call. Wake up. And so <laughs> the, he's saying the locust took your stuff. Joel's kind of calling back to that, but then he's continuing as God leads him. He says, but here we see that it is you that will be taken. So this is the day of the Lord as well. We certainly see the judgment here. But for those that trust in the Lord, the day of the Lord is a day of hope. Because we've seen a de description of present devastation. We've seen a foretelling of defeat. And now we come to an invitation to deliverance through repentance. The next verse, Joel 2, 12 and 13 says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Is that, does that, hits you as hopeful? Does that hit you as an invitation? He says, yet even now. So he's saying it's not too late. Yes, you have this present devastation of a moment where locusts and drought and fire have come in, but there's something worse coming. Turn. Turn now. Turn to me. Turn away. Repent. So yet even now, he's saying it's not too late. There's space between the, the locusts and the army. There is time. God is beckoning He's inviting. He's pleading. He wants you to come and be restored. God is not just a smiting God as we often kind of see him labeled. We see that his work is always for his promise. God is a God committed to his promise, the promise that he made to his people, that he created to be holy and to have relationship with him. 
So we find ourselves at a call to repentance once again, right? So he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. Return to me is this, hey, you were once there, you've left, and turned to other things. Return to me. Return to me with all your heart. And last week in Hosea, we talked about what true, true repentance is. And just to refresh you, it is a return to God, a confession with your lips, and, a, and where we also renounce all other means of deliverance. We know that there is nothing or no one that is trustworthy other than God. Again, he is the glorious one. He is the strong one. He is the good one. He is the faithful one. Anything else we trust in will fail us, whether it's ourselves, others, or any other system or construct in the world. So he's this invitation to repent. This, this full-hearted invitation and this posture of, of humbling and gratefulness turn with fasting and weeping and mourning. And so it's, this meant, it's meant to involve all of who you are, your mind, your heart, your life. If there is to be any freedom, any life change, any truly living into who you were created to be and what you were created for, there has to be a heart change. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. He's saying it's not just the outward. Of course, the way we live matters because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And with that, we also see out of the overflow of the heart is the expression of our life. But to say, rend your hearts and not your garments is to say it is not up to what you can muster. Because in this, this word picture is this picture that we kind of can, you can kind of uh, call to the, the prophets of Baal, not that, you know, in that they were, they were working them up into a frenzy to awake their God. And that's kind of the, pasture, the, pe- the po- posture that the people of God had taken of like, if I just show enough fervor, if I show enough angst, if I show enough grief, maybe God will accept me. And he's saying, no, it's not what you can muster up. It's what I can do for you. So therefore, bring your heart to me in earnest and honest ways and let me transform you. Let me work in you. I will restore you. That's where our heart change happens. This is exactly what God promises. You can't change your heart. God knows that. He says, I will change your heart. I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will take what was dead and I will make it alive. Dead things cannot bring life to themselves. The creator of life can. So come before God in earnest and honest ways as you are and say, I, I, I have to turn away from all and I turn to you. That's where freedom is. So God's promise of deliverance follows his divine discipline and results in full restoration. God's promise of deliverance follows his divine, his divine discipline and results in full restoration. Joel 2, 18 through 22 says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am, sending to, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him to a, a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. In that statement, he has done great things. He's saying he has done terrible things. The great is in this magnitude of the offense that he's committed. But I love how God then the next sentence says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. The magnitude of goodness and glory. 
Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruits. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Do you see this picture of full restoration? All that was taken. There's two more important things for us to remember about God's restoration that I want to, two important things. First is that we must recognize, and we see it here, that it is, it is not and never has been about our goodness that causes God to work for our good and compels him to keep his promise. 2.18 makes it abundantly clear that it was his own mercy and benevolence and pity that caused him to restore his people, his own commitment to his promise and his people that moved him to compassion, to restore. It wasn't that they had finally become worthy. They, They had finally shown enough intent to earn it. It is his intent. So we have to catch that. Secondly, God's restoration is about his promise, not about your favor. It's about his promise, not your favor. Read, uh, so we're looking at Joel 2, 24 and 27. It says, The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore you to the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. It wasn't about the stuff, getting the stuff back, getting the land back, getting the things back for the people of Israel. It was about them being a people of promise, a people meant to experience the realities of belonging to Yahweh God and then to reveal that reality to the world around them. That's what it was about. And God keeping his promise to his people, his promise to all of creation was kept because it is through them revealing the character of God, that the world would respond and turn to him. Do you get that? We must be careful that we don't venture into this prosperity kind of gospel as we think about this. Because we see here that these judgments are in response to sin. And, you know, to to, to say that, you know, did God... Did God cause the locusts to come in in response to judgment or did God take advantage of a moment in a fallen world? Because make no mistake, there are times that a people's sin brings about judgment, but we are not, there is no way that we can't say and we shouldn't say that every devastating thing in the world is because it is an act of judgment on the people. Whether it's the tsunamis, the earthquakes, the mass shootings, we, it would not be right for us to say it is that that is definitively an act of judgment on them. What we can know is that every one of those things are a result of living in a fallen world, a world that is fractured and broken, that God is working to restore, and this world is straining to be restored. And so we have to be careful not to slip into this prosperity gospel as we think about this. Prosperity gospel in the blatant form is the one that says, God owes me if I do good for him, or that the amount of faith that I have determines how much God bestows blessing on me. My faith will bring God's favor. That's kind of the blatant form. But there's also a more subtle form of this prosperity gospel that kind of slips into our midst more than we probably recognize. And it's this idea that somehow God's blessing of my life results in me having a life of comfort and plenty. Or stated another way, the way that I can tell God loves me and is for me and that he is real is if the circumstances of my life are good. 
if I'm if I if work is smooth, if my relationships are good, if my finances are in order. That we can we can have these subtle things of defining God's goodness through our circumstances. The call so we have to remember it is not about what we get. Our our God's love for us is not based on our ability to have enough faith. We have to remember that the call to Christ is the call to come and die. We are called to pour ourselves out as he did for us. Our promise is not of this world. Praise God, it's not. Every good gift is from above, and we're meant to enjoy all of them that God gives us in a way that just only revels, brings us to reveling in the goodness of God all the more. Um, but they are never to be our hope. And they are never to be our metric for God's goodness or love for us. That was a quick caveat. But here's why this matters. God didn't stop with just an earthly restoration. It wasn't just that, okay, I'm going to give you your crops back. I'm going to give you your position back. I'm going to you know, put back your, you know, in your places. He didn't stop with just an earthly, earthly restoration. Through Joel, God is showing here that he continues to even a greater restoration and hope to come. Joel 2.28 and 29 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Joel here points to a day when the reality is far greater than just earthly promises. Joel is speaking here of the work of Jesus, where it's not just a, a physical occupying of land, it's not just a, 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 a nation sense of, of being a people, but it is being restored fully in Christ. We know this because in Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost, as Peter is preaching, he quotes, he quotes this passage. So it is not that we're making a stretch, we're making a guess. It is very clearly shown that this is what is being spoke of, is the work that Jesus accomplishes. Jesus accomplished our salvation by taking on our sin and death, taking on our guilt and giving us his innocence and life in the resurrection. And in Jesus we are also given the Holy Spirit. And we see here the Spirit will be poured out on his people. What does the Holy Spirit of God do? The Holy Spirit... It's given to us. In Ephesians, we see that it is the good deposit. It is, it is the claim of us to, from God. It is the, it's like the earnest deposit you make on a house. You're given the Holy Spirit as your good deposit. It seals you. It keeps you. The Holy Spirit also assures you of God's love. In Romans 5, it says, in the, and by the Holy Spirit, pour God's love into your heart to remind you that you are loved, to remind you that you are his the Holy Spirit gives you power. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is in you because it was done by the Holy Spirit. So it gives you power. It also inclines your heart to, to live in fellowship and honor God. It brings understanding to the truth and word of God. So this is a picture of far greater fulfillment than just things and places. It's no wonder that we get sidetracked by things of this world. We expect far too little. We expect God just to, again, and I say this is probably more passive than it is active, but we, but we kind of get lulled to sleep that it is all about just today. It's all about just this moment and these things and my comfort. But God says you expect far too little. In Christ, you are whole and free, redeemed, accepted, and made more than a conqueror. God is his promise, he's got a saying, my promise is much greater.
those things are fickle. They will, they will float away. How much greater is it to have a hope, a peace, a joy, that it does not have to have something be present. It is not contingent on, on a, a, some fulfilling earthly relationship. It's not contingent on respect in the workplace. It's not contingent on comfort of, of life going well. I mean, life is fragile. We see in this picture, we saw it in our, in our city, in a moment, it can all be stripped away. And God's promise is a hope and a peace that will endure, that will sustain because of Jesus. He's saying, I want you to start with me. He's saying, see your life in terms that are defined by who God is, by what he has promised. See yourself by who God is and who he says you are. Instead of defining God's goodness by your circumstances, instead of defining your worth by what happens to you. The people of Israel have forgotten their God. They had forgotten who they were. God is calling them back, reminding them who they are, who they were created to be, and showing that in Christ it is complete. So I want to close with a helpful exercise, something practical, this process that we can actually walk through through our days to stay rooted in the reality of who God is, what he's done, what he's promised us, who he's created to be, to stay rooted in his love, his truth, and his grace. So we're going to put something up on the screen in a moment. It's, this, it's from this book called, the God, called Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. Um, and if you're curious, we kind of have a list of first five recommended books. If you're new to faith, um, as you're journeying, if you don't know where to start, we kind of have a list of our first recommended five. This is one of them. But this is from Jeff Vanderstelt's book, Gospel Fluency. This is a process you can walk through to make sure that you are seeing yourself from who God says you are, who he is, as opposed to what your circumstances tell you or what others tell you. So it's meant to help us see ourselves in this way. So we're called, it's kind of this idea of fruit to root and root to fruit. We're going to start with fruit to root. So we can go ahead and put the first one up. So fruit to root is what we're talking about here. Go ahead and put, you can do the next one. Is, uh, f- the fruit is the expression of your life, which you are experiencing. So if we start with the circumstances and experiences of your life, this is where we're starting. We've put some up here to kind of help us. You, you don't feel like you have to stick with these. But if you can't read it, kind of some of the fruit of our lives that we see. This is talking about in these moments of doubt, of, of struggle. Of, uh, so we see like desire for control, fear, anxiety, worthiness, um, you know, maybe, maybe you can fill in your own, but it's that I am feeling this or I am experiencing this. So that's where we start. We start with the fruit of our lives. And this is a posture of confession. It's a posture of kind of bringing things into the light to let God minister to you in his grace. And so it's, it's, so we see these things and then we ask, okay, if I, if I'm feeling this, who does this say? I'm so for, no, let's stay there. So we're going to walk through all this. So if I'm feeling this, if I feel fear, who am I? What does that say? Like, what, what does that mean I am? It means that maybe, maybe for you, it means I'm alone. It means that I'm, I'm, I'm weak and unable to overcome. Um, I am, I'm a failure, right? What different things that cause fear. So maybe think of that thing for you. And so if you're feeling that way, what does that mean about you are? And then what has God done? What has God done that, that, that allows me to feel this way? So if I feel, if, I'm, if my fear is from me feeling alone, God has abandoned me. God has left me. God doesn't like me. And so then if we're feeling that, we say, well, who is God then? God is not loving. God is not merciful. God is not true. 
God is not patient. So we're working through this kind of process of confession, of trying to, as we think about these, these fears that define us, playing out what are the actualities that we're seeing. And so then this process, this posture of confession, leads us into repentance, turning away from these things, turning to God. And so we can go to the next one. So then we start from root, and we're working up to fruit. So then if I am fearful, and I'm fearful because I feel like I'm alone, which means I think that God doesn't love me and that he's abandoned me, which then therefore God is not loving, he's not good, he's not powerful, then I come to this and I say, well, who actually is God? No, God is good. God is faithful. God is merciful and compassionate and patient and true. And so then we say, okay, well, if that is who God is, what has God done to prove this? And we can look to Scripture for this. We can look to Jesus for this. God sent his one and only son. He took on flesh, entered in, he humbled himself, and not just coming in, coming off the throne, but taking on death in such a humiliating way. He overcame our sin. He overcame our, he, turned, he, he, he took us in, in our shame and rebellion. Or maybe you can recall a way that God has worked in your life previously in this way. How have you seen God proven faithful in your own life? Call that back as well. And so who is God? He is good. He is loving. He is true. He is faithful and sovereign and kind. What has God done to prove this? And then we go, so, who did, so what does that mean about me? If I am his and he created me and this is who God is, who am I? I am never alone because he will never leave and forsake me. I have eternal relationship because of Jesus. I am more than a conqueror because he fought my battles and won for me. Do you see? And then we can actually see a, a fruit of God, a fruit of the Spirit come from our lives, a steadfastness, a hopefulness, a joy regardless of circumstances, a peace that surpasses understanding. So I want to make sure we understand why this comes from Joel, because the people forgot who they were. They had forgot what they were created for. They had defined their blessing by stuff and position. God called them back, said, repent, return to me. Devastation is here, but it's coming even worse. Turn to me. The day of the Lord is judgment, but it's the day of judgment where God keeps his promises. And God's intent is that all would turn to him, all would hear and know Jesus. And so the day of the judgment is the day where God has made promises and he keeps them. And so today, respond. He's calling to you. He's beckoning to you, just like you've done with your child or your friends, where you said, please, I, just, I want you to avoid this pain. Hear him. Respond. See yourself from who God is, from, who he cre- from his truth and who he's created you to be. Do not forget. And if you do, joyfully repent because it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Do you believe God is who he says he is? Do you believe you are what God says you are? Do you define the circumstances of your life by God's realities and promises, or or do you define God by your circumstances? Do you catch that question in the distinction? Do you define your circumstances of your life by God's realities and truth and promises, or do you define God by what happens to you? As you pray on that, as you think on that, I am, again, I, wanna, I encourage you to respond to God first and foremost. Rend your hearts and not your garments. But also share this, your reflections and your, your understandings with one another throughout your days. 
you're in a transformation group, please share that in your transformation group this week. As you gather together around dinner tables and coffee shops and working on cars and painting flowers and, I don't know, all the other reasons we get together, right? I don't know. Anyone painted a flower with someone else recently? I haven't. I was just trying to peg, like, who would that be? Who in here of all people would paint a flower with someone? I picked Carrie Hartman. I picked Carrie Hartman. She would paint flowers with someone else this past week. I don't know if you have or not, but if someone has, it's you. But again, share this. Like, you know, it's interesting. I didn't read this, but Joel 1 starts with, like, through your generations, share this. And he's speaking of judgment, but it's also in the positive. Like, the life shared in Christ is one of the greatest strengths we have as a church. Just share the journey. Share your reflections of who God says you are. And also, I encourage you to share your hope of Jesus with the world. Let me pray. Um, So, God, we love you. We need you. We thank you for your grace and patience. We thank you for your unending love that perseveres, that continues to call out. We also know that in order for you to keep your promise, there has to be a day that you deliver. There has to be a day when you say, okay, I'm calling my people to me. And I know that on that day there will be great celebration in your heart as well as great mourning because it is your desire that no one would perish. So God, I pray right now today that we would hear your call. We would hear your invitation. We would return to you rending our hearts, not just trying to change our behavior. And Lord, that we would see you for who you are. And in that we would see ourselves for who you created us to be. And in that we would know peace, and that we would know joy, and that we would live out our purpose. So, Lord, we love you, God. We praise you. We continue to worship you through time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.